What's the best movie theory ever? Skynet purposely lets humans survive because without them, it wouldn't have a purpose. There's enough nuclear weapons in the US arsenal to irradiate an entire planet, yet only relatively small amounts were launched by Skynet. After Judgment Day, Skynet could easily poison water supplies, raise every forest and farmland, and release biological and chemical weapons making it impossible to survive. But they don't. I think the Terminator franchise is in a multiverse and Skynet is aware of this. It keeps repeating the loop, thus optimizing itself and humanity in a sort of genetic algorithm. The ultimate goal is to create a unified, progressive humanity which is capable of accepting and integrating the machine intelligence, thus avoiding Judgment Day and elevating both groups as one. The tragedy of the series is humanity's relentless will to fight always results in its destruction, but a glimmer of hope remains, and after an infinite number of loops, the good ending must eventually occur. All of this stems from an iRobot premise where Skynet is acting to preserve humanity through misinterpreting its actions. Just to simplify this, it's Groundhog Day with killer robots and John Connor is Bill Murray. I'm fond of the Back to the Future theory that Doc knew Marty died when Biff was about to run him down in his car at the end of the tunnel in the second movie, but there's no way he could have known to do that unless Marty got hit and died the first time, which prompted Doc to use the DeLorean to jump back to before that happened in order to use that knowledge to save him. Agent Smith is the one, not Neo. It is prophesied that the one would be born in the Matrix, able to bend it to their will, and would ultimately free all the humans. Smith, a program, was born in the Matrix, whereas Neo, a human, was born in those giant human farms the machines run. Smith totally took over the Matrix, like completely. Neo can fly and stop bullets and stuff, but that's nothing compared to Smith. He even jokes, You like what I've done with the place? He made the Matrix completely his. Smith is more responsible for freeing the humans than Neo. The machines would never have agreed to free them all unless they were at Smith's mercy. Neo may have negotiated the deal, but it was Smith who made it possible. Plus, the Oracle even tells Neo that he's not the one, in the very first film. I'm going to go with a great Reddit gem from a few years back. The thing I really liked about planes is that we learned that World War II happened in the Cars universe, which means that there was a Cars version of the Third Reich's leader, a Cars Holocaust, a Cars Pacific War, a Cars D-Day, Akar's nuking of Horoshima and Nagasaki, Akar's tragedy of Nanking, Akar's battle of Iwo Jima, this leads to so many important questions. Were the Akar's little boy and fat man nukes sentient? Was that a suicide mission? Are all Akar's nuclear weapons sentient? Did Tsar Bomber have a personality? What kind of car was Car Fuhrer of Germany? A VW? A forklift? Was there a Akar's September the 11th? Were the planes hijacked or were the planes themselves radicalized? I could go on. This post blew my mind, swept up the pieces, hurled them into an incinerator, burned the ashes, and fertilized the garden with them. Luke's success as a Jedi Knight, at least initially, was due to a stable home life. We all know the old order was flawed, but one of the biggest flaws was the way that they raised their Jedi children. They were taught that attachments were bad and should be avoided at all cost. One of the most brutal achievements the Jedi try to avoid is love. But avoiding love isn't easy, so the Jedi, taught to be blank emotionless knights, end up feeling the pull of attachments, which is fine until you lose that attachment. They are unable to cope because they were never taught to cope with loss, so they either accept that loss as the will of the Force, which is dispassionate and dangerous in its own right, or they let their grief control them. Luke, on the other hand, had a normal and stable childhood with loving adoptive parents, so Luke got to be raised in an environment where he wasn't taught to hide away from his emotions. 
He was raised in an environment where he could love, lose, and have a shoulder to cry on. It made him emotionally stable, so when the dark side calls to him, he doesn't fall as easily as every other Jedi in the history of the galaxy. Also, the thing that Jedi do preach, he has actually experienced. They're always going on about compassion, but that's a rote to them. Luke has actually experienced true compassion and love. So to sum up, Jedi should be allowed to bone. The Avatar The Last Airbender movie was not about the Avatar series, but the play they watched in the theater in the Fire Nation. This is the closest that abomination will ever come to being redeemed in the narrator's eyes. That the Spy Kids movies take place within the Tarantino universe. Because it's directed by Robert Rodriguez, there are elements of the machete-verse present, namely that Machete is the protagonist's frickin' uncle. There's plenty of material that connects the Rodriguez universe with the Tarantino movies, but if you watch Rodriguez's kids' movies, Spy Kids 1, 2, and 3, as well as Shark Boy and Lava Girl, there are little Tarantino details like Big Kahuna Burgers and such. Max in Mad Max Fury Road was actually the kid from Road Warrior who emulated the original Max. He only gives his name at the very end because he's finally acting like a hero, and now he feels he's worthy of the name Max. It explains the differences in looks, the problems in continuity, and why Max isn't as old as a Morton Joe. That the monsters in Cloverfield were specifically targeting people who drank the energy drink that Rob worked for. At one point, Hud says, It's almost like they were trying to carry me away. And earlier in the film, he mentioned that he drank a lot of the stuff. It is interesting that because the monsters were killing everybody upon sight, but they began dragging him away instead. Viral marketing campaign for the movie was deep, and though we learned that the energy drink company was also drilling the ocean floor, and likely using that stuff in drinks, so a giant monster coming out of the ocean and targeting people who've consumed these weird ocean floor ingredients isn't all that insane. Also, in the film, they show a satellite crash into the ocean, if you look closely. I think this is a trick to make casual viewers think it was just the satellite that woke the monster, and this is what most fans online believed when the film was popular but I'm pretty certain it was that Japanese drilling-slash-drink company. And even then, I'm sure there are way more details I don't remember. I guess this all counts as a theory because it was put together from fake MySpace profiles and websites, manipulating audio files and stuff like that. Not much audio was in the actual film. I definitely do think there was something to the fact that the monsters tried to carry HUD away instead of just killing him. And if I remember correctly, it was the main monster that finally snatched him up and ate him, rather than just ripping him apart or something. The Prestige is Christopher Nolan's sneaky way of revealing the secret of Christian Bale's life. How does he go from nearly dead to Batman to fat back to fit in just months? It's not through diet and exercise. He has a skinny twin hidden away. When a role calls for a skinny Christian Bale, his brother fills in. They each share one life. How does Leo DiCaprio keep getting choice movie roles and date the hottest chicks? It's not just through talent and good looks. He's a real-life inceptioner. The Rock Universe. Every movie where Dwayne Johnson's bull tattoo appears are part of the same universe. The Fast and the Furious franchise is the same universe as Baywatch. Rampage is a direct sequel to San Andreas, but Moana and the Mummy franchise are not a part of the universe. My theory is about the room. I believe Johnny is actually a mentally handicapped individual, and Lisa and Mark are his caretakers. Denny is another handicapped kid who lives at the facility. The story is told from Johnny's point of view, and he doesn't realize that he is essentially handicapped and believes he's in a relationship with Lisa. Lisa and Mark are in fact in a relationship, and the movie is just Johnny's interpretation of what is occurring. Meanwhile, he's simply living in a care facility, that's why everyone lives in the same apartment building. Quentin Tarantino's Top Gun is a Gay Romance Theory 
There are two types of men after watching that volleyball scene. The gay and the blind. I've seen gay porn that's not as homoerotic as that volleyball scene. Birdman didn't actually survive his suicide on stage. The hospital scene in the end was just Riggins' dream scenario. His wife defending him, his best friend being excited for their success, their play being a success, his daughter bringing the correct flowers, him being on the front page of the newspaper and getting noticed on TV, and finally, him being Birdman. My bro's theory. After the home alones, Kevin runs away and is eventually taken in by a family that already has a son and a daughter. Distraught by the fact that his actual family has forgotten about him once more, he decides to terrorize his new family in The Good Son. The Joker in The Dark Knight is an ex-soldier-slash-special forces operative, hence why he's skilled with various different weapons, guns, rocket launchers, etc. He also seems to have some knowledge of how to interrogate people, given his comments when Batman interrogates him. Ex-cop or military makes sense. Also, don't forget the scene where he's in uniform but not in makeup. A war wound would also explain the scars. Maybe he was tortured until he broke. Aladdin takes place in a post-apocalyptic world, 10,000 years past current times. That is why the world is a desert and the genie, having just been freed from the lamp, references pop culture in the 20th century. I wouldn't call it the best, but it's certainly the only plausible fan theory I've ever come up with on my own. In Independence Day, when Russell Case almost sets off the missile in the hangar, but then aborts the launch, it causes the squibs to malfunction, and that's why he wasn't able to fire his last missile at the ship. I'm in aviation, but I'm not an armament guy, but I'm fairly certain that's not how that works at all. But I've come up with the theory on my own, and I like it. In the first episode of Pokemon, Ash sees Ho-Oh. Ho-Oh is said to grant the trainers who see him eternal happiness. Ash's idea of eternal happiness was probably to travel around the world of Pokemon forever, so he is always 10 throughout the series. Furthermore, the reason he never wins the Pokemon League, because he would probably stop traveling as he would be the champion and end his journey. Mace Windu is Emperor Snoke. These aren't spoilers of the new film, FYI, as this wasn't even addressed. Mace Windu was a promoter of both the dark and light. The color of the lightsaber is violet, a symbolic representation of light and dark. Jedis have notoriously been difficult to kill by falling in past films, and Windu could have been seriously disfigured from the Force lightning. Willy Wonka is a serial killer. If you think about it, as we discussed with some friends after watching Christmas Eve, he's a recluse that just randomly decided to open up to the public and all these kids managed to fall into the midst of arguably fatal experiences. There were also only eight seats in the boat, not ten, and only four seats in the Wonka car. The grand prize winner is the last one alive. The Wonkavator is never shown to have landed. This could suggest that he intended to kill Charlie, and possibly himself, as well. We just never see it crash. This is a movie theory thread. The books have no power here. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Inception Wedding Ring In the film, anytime Leonardo DiCaprio has a wedding ring on, he is in a dream. That is his true totem, not the spinning top. From what I have watched, it seems to hold up, and gives the ending a proper resolution. In the 2009 Star Trek reboot and one of the sequels, the song Sabotage by the Beastie Boys plays. Therefore, the Beastie Boys exist in the Star Trek universe. However, the Beastie Boys have another song called Intergalactic, which contains the lyric, Like a pinch on the neck from Mr. Spock. The theory to reconcile this is that in Star Trek IV, the crew of the main timeline Enterprise go back to 1986, before the timelines diverged, on a quest to find some humpback whales, during which time Kirk and Spock take a bus and Spock neckpinches a punk, the theory being that a young beastie boy was on the bus and witnessed the strange interaction, then wrote about it. That the Flintstones is actually the future of the Jetsons universe, after a great holocaust devastates their utopian world and knocks everyone back to the Stone Age. Fred and Barney and the gang have all kinds of technological concepts that true Stone Age people wouldn't even be aware of. The theory that nearly the entirety of Greece is Sandy's coma dream after the drowning. Danny saving her is where the coma begins, and them in a car flying away at the end is Sandy dying in her coma and ascending to heaven. It actually makes the movie much more bearable for me. There are numerous theories like this in the Reddit thread, and the general response is that the it's all a dream slash hallucination theory is a cop-out. I think Greece might be the one exception that proves the rule. Not film, but TV. Malcolm in the Middle's dad, Hal, and Breaking Bad's Walter White are the same actor and the same character. Similarly, Modern Family is the continuing story of Married with Children. Character names changed to avoid copyright issues. I like the theory that Malcolm is actually Walter. That's why we never see his parents. He was embarrassed by them. He grew up poor and hated getting handouts, which is why he didn't want help from Grey Matter. When Malcolm is a kid, we see how poorly he handles money, because they never really had any. So when he makes enough money from his drugs for his treatment, he can't stop and keeps going with it, all the while knowing that he's putting himself and his family in danger. As much as I like Hal, I can't see him as Walter. He can't even bring himself to work a full week for almost 15 years, so I can't see him starting a company and making all that money with Grey Matter, and then teaching. Plus, he'd have gotten away from Lois, and the only way that happens is if she dies, and even then he's so whipped and in love with her, I don't see him being able to move on to another woman. The real antagonist of Avengers 1, Loki, absolutely punked everyone and won. Thor 1, Loki gets the boot from Asgard, banished by the Allfather and ordered never to return. Avengers 1. Loki apparently gets stomped and is given a first-class, incredibly safe, one-way Bifrost ticket straight to Asgard to be locked up. Thor 2. Loki is in the White Room executive suite of jail cells with all the reading material he could ever want. When the time is right, he sneaks his way back, hatches his plan, taking the throne. His goal from Thor 1. Thor Ragnarok. Loki is chilling like a villain. 
Everything is awesome for him because everything worked out just as planned. What would have happened if he had just tried to defy Odin and stomp back into Asgard? Heimdall would have known right off the bat and smacked him around, and then he'd have had all the rest of the Aesir there in a heartbeat. No. Loki got himself invited back to Asgard with a royal procession on the orders of Odin himself. Loki wins. It's just what he does. It's important to note that this post was released just after the Ragnarok film and before Endgame. Still, he did get power before all that went down. Anakin has a really weird way of flirting with Padme in Attack of the Clones, and we're not really sure why it works when he says things like, I don't like sand, to attract her. Since Anakin is the chosen one and the most powerful force user anyone has ever seen, it's possible that he was a Jedi mind-tricking her into loving him intentionally. Even his hand is up right before they kiss, signaling there could be some force action going on. Peter Pan kills the lost boys when they get too old. Captain Hook knows this, and that's why he's always after Peter. I guess that isn't the best, but it's the one that's always stuck with me, and killed my inner child. It's more or less stated in the book, quote, The boys on the island vary, of course, in numbers, according as they get killed and so on, and when they seem to be growing up, which is against the rules, Peter thins them out, but at this time there were six of them, counting the twins as two. I've seen this theory before, but in researching this video, I found that it's actually in fact confirmed as a canon possibility by the scholars of the book, which is truly horrifying. In Home Alone, Kevin's mum says that she would sell her soul to the devil himself to see her son. The devil, played by John Candy, immediately appears and takes her back to the house in suburban Chicago. On the way, he plays a jaunty song on his clarinet to celebrate the soul he's just claimed. That Anakin brought balance to the Force by striking down the Jedi. There were about two prominent Sith and Jedi alive by the end of the prequels. This is TV, but that Toby is the Scranton Strangler. There's way too many details to put on here, you can just Google them, sorry. I heard Toby was originally one of the writers, and they just wrote him in as a joke. Makes sense they would put him in as a serial strangler. Maybe not. That Han Solo killed himself with Kylo's lightsaber, knowing that Snoke would kill Kylo if the job wasn't done. He sacrificed himself so that his son wouldn't be hurt by Snoke. That Ant-Man is in every Marvel movie. Who would know? Pan's Labyrinth is in a parallel world version of Labyrinth, where a young girl must always choose whether or not to sacrifice her baby stepbrother to the mythical creature, while undergoing tests such as eating forbidden fruit, being chased through tunnels, and watching fairies get murdered. The cycle cannot be broken until she actually does it. Glinda was the real villain of The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy's house crushes the so-called Wicked Witch of the East, and her sister shows up to claim the shoes of her now-deceased sister, possibly her last family member in Oz. Of course she's going to be grouchy, her sister just died. Yet Glinda has the gall to deny her sister's shoes and say, they're probably really powerful, she wouldn't want them if they weren't, ignoring the fact that they rightfully belong to the Wicked Witch of the West since they were her sisters, and maybe she wants the clothing items that were just stolen from her still-warm corpse. So Glinda sends a child off alone to find the wizard, who tells said child that she just needs to go murder the scary witch who is in a rage because her sister just died. In the end, Dorothy manages to defeat the wicked witch and bring the broom back to the fake wizard, who then accidentally leaves her behind. But it's okay, because Glinda reveals that the shoes could have taken her home all along with a reasoning that, you wouldn't have believed me. Dorothy was just magically transported into a colourful world where a good witch flew in on a bubble and a bunch of short people sang a happy song about a woman dying. I think she would have believed Glinda if she told her that the shoes were magical at that point. 
My theory is that Glinda was playing a masterful game, using everyone else as pawns. As a result of her actions, the Wicked Witch of the West is dead and the Wizard of Oz is gone. This leaves a power vacuum that can be filled by Glinda, now the most powerful magical being in Oz. Why would she have forced Dorothy to go on a perilous journey if she was just trying to help? She clearly had sinister motives. Not a movie, but Rick from Rick and Morty is suicidal because he knows he's in a pointless TV show for our entertainment, and nothing he ever does matters. His catchphrase, Wubba Lubba Dub Dub, even means, I'm in great pain, according to Birdperson. The never-ending story. The old man who first owns the book in the movie is dying, and that's why Fantasia is falling apart. Since the movie depends on the reader to continue the story, his health condition was reflected in the events that take place in the movie. As far as what condition that man may have, it could be anything. However, since the nothing seems to be erasing everything from existence, it's probably a brain issue. When Bastion starts reading the book, a young boy, Atriu, is sent forth to save the land. And since Bastion is a new reader with no life-threatening ailment, technically, he is the savior, which is why Atreyu saw Bastion in the Mirror Gate after passing through the Gold Sphinx Gate to get to the Southern Oracle. I don't know if this is a known theory or common knowledge, but it occurred to me the last time I watched the film, and I had never thought of it before. It made sense to me. Angry Birds is a film about the effects of immigration. The pigs come in and steal away the birds' future. Eggs. So the birds need to learn to man up and defend their borders. This is not intended to spark political debate. I don't care if you like immigration or not. That Rufus, Rowan Atkinson, in Love Actually, is actually a god or Cupid. All of his actions in the movie serve to stop characters from compromising their relationships, or enables them to create relationships. 